This New America NYC event took place on September 29, 2016, and is titled Strangers in Their Own Land, A Journey into the Heart of the American Right, and features author Arlie Russell Hofschild, Professor Emerita, University of California, Berkeley, and Nina Burley, National Politics Correspondent, Newsweek. How many of you have read have read the New York Times Review or are familiar with the book? Okay, good. So we're we're coming into a cold. Um, well, I was uh, able to look at it last night. I speed read through it. I just received it, and um, I cover uh, national politics, as he said. And I'm coming off of um, a week where I watched the debates, and I imagine that many of you watched the debate, right? And I am one of those people who thought that Hillary wiped the floor with him. And I got up the next morning and realized that I was not, or many other people agreed with me, but many people did not. And so when I opened this book last night, I was actually supposed to be working on a story about Trump. And um, it was a nice diversion. And I spent about four hours in it. It's a wonderful I mean, Arlie is a wonderful writer, and I'm familiar. You all are familiar with the Second Shift, but this book is really—it's um, important, and it's—it'll um, make your blood boil, and uh, it'll also open your eyes. So I uh, commend you for this. Thank you so much for coming and for allowing us to talk to you about it. Um, my first question for you would be: um, Why did you? leave Berkeley to go to this location in southern Louisiana? Um, five years ago, uh, I think, like all of us, I was sensing a huge divide uh, in this country. And it wasn't because the left was getting more left, but because the right was getting more right, and there were more people openly uh, embracing a right agenda. And positions were hardening, and uh, we were in enclaves, I realized, geographic enclaves. There's a, a book that shows that when people move, they move uh, less and less to better weather and more, um, you know, better, even better jobs uh, or cheaper houses and more to live in a politically and culturally congenial place so that we're living in uh, geographic enclaves, media enclaves, electronic enclaves. And like when I talk to my husband, uh, to my best friend, to my neighbor in Berkeley, California, or any student who did my course in sociology, they agree totally with me. But then I turn on the television, you know, or uh, read the paper and realize there are people that think people like us are nuts. So um, I got curious. What would happen if I got out of my enclave and found an enclave as far right as Berkeley is left? Now, where would that be? I knew that the right had grown fastest in the South. Okay, I wanted to go to the South. Uh, I knew that uh, it was among whites. That's who's <coughs> exiting Democratic Party, moving to the Republicans and further right within that party. Um, okay, white, so white South. Um, older, evangelical, religious. Yes, let me go there. But where in the South? I read that um, in 2012, uh, half of whites in, Louisa in uh, uh, California voted for Barack Obama. In the South as a region, a third did. And in Louisiana, 16% of whites voted for Barack Obama in 2012. I thought, perfect. OK, I want to go to Louisiana. It's the super South. And as luck would have it, I had one contact. 
and this was a progressive woman, the uh, mother-in-law of a former student of mine, and her best party part, uh, friend was Tea Party. Oh, interesting. So what I did is what I have done in other books as well, try to immerse myself in a culture. And to do that, I realized I had to take off my alarm system. You know, my, my emotional, political alarm system so that the point of talking with other people isn't to convince them or be persuasive, it's to absorb and learn and permit myself all the curiosity I had. Uh, and I became more and more curious the closer I got to these people. So that's what led me into this. And what inspired me at first was some curiosity about the, this familiar red state paradox that the poorer states, the states with the worst education and the worst health, the lowest life expectancy, the most troubled families, the most uh, unwed moms and stuff, uh, are also the states uh, that receive more federal dollars in aid than they give in taxes and the most resistance to the whole existence of the federal government. That's the red state paradox, and that's what I carried around me like a backpack. So, so how does this fit together? Louisiana was a super red state paradox because it is, as of this year, the poorest state in the union. 44% of its state budget uh, comes from the federal government, and it's mainly Tea Party. I thought, well, first the one Tea Party or another. No, no, they're the whole place, really. Well, I'm exaggerating. We're talking whites. and uh, But in one uh, study, uh, half of Louisiana voters uh, were... Um, said they agreed with the tenets of the Tea Party. Actually... So I thought this is perfect. And I got to know people over a period of five years. I interviewed 60 people, 40 of whom were very right wing. And um, that's me. <laughs> and um, so uh, I, and the, the surprising thing, is that I, I felt I had to cross an empathy wall to understand this paradox. And the paradox is that they wanted to climb it too. At first, I'll give you an example of how this happened. I was going to uh, meetings. In the book, I described my whole method. Uh, there were a lot of ways that I got around but uh, one of them was to go to meetings of the Louisiana uh, Republican Women of Southwest Louisiana meetings and see who I found around the table and get to talk to them. One woman who was a gospel singer, Pentecostal, uh, uh, wife of a Pentecostal minister, and she said, I love Rush Limbaugh, you know, the conservative radio host. And I... I think took a minute, <laughs> half a minute, less. I'd really love to talk to you about that. Could we have sweet teas tomorrow? Do you have any time? Yeah, sure. So she began. I asked her, what, what did she love about him? Oh, Rush, he's my, he's my uh, uh, brave heart, she calls. Brave heart. And it's because he hates feminazis. Okay, so, feminazis. And so what's a feminazi? Oh, it is a hard, cold woman who wants to be just like a man and doesn't want the door closed for her by a man. And she's uh, so hard, cold. Well, I thought, well, I don't like hard, cold people either. So, um, and then uh, she might have been looking at my face um, because... She then said, is it hard to hear what I'm saying? And I thought, we have this in common, you know? 
she, and she said, you know, I can do what you're doing, because I actually answered, no, it's actually not hard for me. This isn't why I'm here. I'm here to learn from you. And, and uh, so it's not hard at all. She said, yeah, I, I do what you do, too, in certain circumstances. And we started with that. And by the end of the conversation, she was saying, you know why I really like Rush Limbaugh? He's protecting me from a lot of mainstream people out there in the culture and liberals on people on the coasts that think I'm just a southern, uh, uneducated, ignorant person. They think that I'm homophobic, that I'm racist, that I'm sexist, and that I'm fat. <laughs> she was um, ample, shall we say. Um, <laughs> Um, and she didn't like Michelle Obama's telling us what to eat, you know, too much government interference. So we really, I learned a lot, you know, that she felt that defensive. First of all, that she knew <laughs> what a lot of people do think. And then she felt uh, hurt by it, insulted by it, and that she felt she needed protection against that. So it took me into a world, and that's how it kept going. I have to say it's some of the very most interesting and paradoxically enjoyable. Did you, I'll have to explain why that is, but did, did you, um, I have a process question. Um, because as a journalist, I, I sometimes go out, I'll, you know, to those regions and have interview people, uh, but I, don't, I get to leave and, uh, um, I have had those types of conversations, but you collected 4,000 or 5,000 pages of transcripts, and you spent five years on this project. Did you move there, or did you sort of come in and stay for a week and then go home? Yes. How, what's the process? The process was um, a lot of visits. I would visit. And um, sometimes my husband, Adam, who's a writer and journalist, would bring his stuff and we would set up in Aunt Ruby's B&B &B and sit like Lake Charles and he would do his work and I would go out. He met a lot of people I met. I also brought my uh, nephew. My son came once. So there were a lot of visits, but uh, I sometimes... What was the longest day. single period of time that you stayed there? One month. One month, yeah. But, uh, but you didn't gain weight? You didn't eat a lot of fried food? <laughs> I did eat a lot of fried food, yeah. I did. Um, so, but what I did, too, was tell them who I was. Who was I? It looked like I dropped out of the sky. No, I'm Arlie Hochschild. I'm, you know, retired uh, professor of sociology from Berkeley, and I'm... I feel like we're in two different political bubbles and that people aren't talking to each other, so I'm coming over to find out, and would you help me? Yes, we certainly would. Do you want to come to the over-60s gumbo cook-off? <laughs> yes, thank you. So it kind of, I got passed around. I became a little bit, of some. they helped me. I would... Uh, have them sign a, a form, you know, human protection of human subjects, UC Berkeley form, you know, this is what I'm doing. Yes, do you agree? Turn, turn the tape recorder off if you don't want. And after three hours, they would uh, say, thank you for the visit. And in truth, these were visit-like encounters, you know? And then when I went home, I would email people and Skype people. Skype didn't often work because... I couldn't understand the accent, actually. <laughs> and you kind of have to see. Uh, I, I had, not with everybody, but that really is like being in another country. I you? felt it. You know, the truth is that I myself felt like a stranger in my own land. Um, you talked about the empathy wall in the book. Um, and I have to say that I approached it with attempting to understand that and feel that empathy. Um, and in the beginning of the book, uh, I was about at page 16, and my blood started to boil. There are just certain positions that they take that um, are just so, 
they feel so flinty and ungenerous to what me. What is on page 16? That, I think that it was a accumulation at that point, an accumulation. I can't remember. I just noted, to, I noted in the, my pink note that I'm feeling my blood boil at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, let me see where I, what I was reading. Um, let's see here. Oops, that's page 6. All right, right here I'm writing, make, this is making my blood pressure rise. Um, I think, oh, maybe it was a mention of Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> uh, probably came on the page before. Let's see, we, you were talking about feelings and feeling, feeling rules, left ones and right ones. The right seeks release from liberal notions of what they should feel happy for the gay newlywed, sad at the plight of the Syrian refugee, unresentful about paying taxes. The left sees prejudice. Such rules challenge the emotional core of right-wing belief. And it is to this core that a freewheeling candidate, such as the billionaire entrepreneur Donald Trump, Republican candidate for president in 2016, can appeal, saying, as he gazes upon throngs of supporters, see all the passion. We can approach that core, I came to see, through what I call a deep story, a story that feels as if it were true. And I guess that at that point, I was feeling that I did not feel it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering if you went through a process, because later in the book, I did feel it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But You did feel empathy for yes. them. And I, I did, Great. because some of the characters that are in this book are very, um, you, you go in deep into their lives. The Arenos family, especially, living on the bayou. Um, maybe you want to talk a little bit about them. But before we get to that, I just want to ask you whether, did you not go through a process where there were moments where you were just biting your tongue and that you felt that feeling of, of just a core challenge? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. And how did you I, handle that? Well, uh, I didn't feel it while I was talking with them. I, I was reaching out to them. You know, my brother was a psychiatrist, and he talked to people who lived in different worlds. And he tried to enter those different worlds. He could be talking to someone who believed that he was uh, the king of England. Um, right? Uh, highly intelligent person who believes he's living in a fantasy. Well, my brother didn't say, ooh, oh, that's ridiculous. You're not the king of England. No, what he did was try and see in what, um, what set of feelings, what's making this guy anxious to be an ordinary citizen? What, what might have been propelling this fantasy? What, what, is it, what is the fantasy doing? How does it fit into his experience, his life? And I think I am like a social psychiatrist. I think I'm, I'm doing that, and that's why that's not hard, even though I completely disagree. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's should, interesting that you um, have used the analogy of talking to somebody who has schizophrenia, though. Right? <laughs> that's that's right. what that was. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> So, but, the, but there are many characters in this book who, um, who really get into your heart, and, and, and Arlie has done an amazing job um, bringing, bringing this world to life, this strange world of people living on uh, bayous that once had towering cypress trees, and the heartbreak of these people who remember what that was like before they were poisoned by the chemical companies that they worked for. And in fact, one of the men that she met uh, admitted to his community that he was one of the people who dumped poison into this bayou that poisoned all the fish and killed all the trees. And, and yet all of these people are vehemently opposed to the EPA and, and hate the federal government for its regulations. Uh, but maybe became, you want to talk a little I, yes. bit about those families. That became my keyhole issue. Maybe I'll take you on a little journey with one person, okay, uh, who represents the, the ultimate, to me, um, condensation of 
an exaggerated version of the red state paradox. You with me? Um, he is uh, a man who uh, was born, I was to discover, on a plantation. And let me just, um, wait a minute, I begin with this? It's a man named Mike Schaff. He's now 64, retired. Along the clay road, Mike's red truck cuts slowly between tall rows of sugarcane, sassy, silvery tassels waving in the October sun, extending across an alluvial plain as far as the eye can see. We are on the grounds of the Armelies Plantation, as it was once called. A few miles west lies the mighty Mississippi River, pressing the soils and waste of the Midwest southward past New Orleans into the Gulf of Mexico. We used to walk barefoot between the rows, Mike says, a tall, kindly white man of 64. He removes his sunglasses to study an area of sugarcane and comes to a near stop. He points his arm out the truck window to the far left. My grandma would have lived over there. Moving his arm rightward, he added, my great uncle Tane's carpentry shop was about there. Nearby was the home of another great uncle Henry, a mechanic named Book, a man named uh, Pirogue ran the blacksmith shop where Mike and a friend hunted scraps of metal that shone through their, his boyhood eyes like gold. His grandfather, Bill, oversaw the cane fields. Miss Ernstine, Mike's continued, was to the side of that, a slim black woman, hair in a white bandana, Mike recalls. She loved to cook raccoon and opossum for a gumbo, and we brought her what we had from a day's hunt. And Chippeek uh, fish, too. I can hear her calling out the window when her husband couldn't start their car. Something's ailing that car. Then Mike points to what he remembers of a dirt driveway to his own childhood home. It was a shotgun house, he muses. You could aim right through it, but it held the nine of us, okay? He was the fifth of seven. The house had been renovated slave quarters on the Armelies plantation, and Mike's father had been a plumber who serviced homes on and off it. Looking out the window of the truck, it's clear that Mike and I see different things. Mike sees a busy, beloved, bygone world. I see a field of green. I see a field of green. So that's where it started. We, we see and imagine different things. This man um, spent his childhood, as you can see, in the Old South and his adulthood in the New South, which is to say he always worked for oil. He, he helped measure the materials that you use to build the big tanks that hold oil or the platforms uh, that are out on uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And he first introduced the idea that uh, government was bad by saying government has taken community away from us. That's the problem. You know, it supplants, it replaces community. It does the things for neighbors that neighbors should do for each other. But what was to happen was this. He lived on a very beautiful bayou, and actually, physically, Louisiana is extraordinary, magnificent. These swamps, uh, the very word swamp called up alligators before, but really is there a magnificent kind of underwater forests, hardwood forests of cypress and tupelo trees, and you see these turns and various birds kind of swooping uh, from one branch to another. And so he lived near that. He loved, loved fishing. He could tell you what the face of 10 different kinds of fish looked like. Well, now, for me, you know, fish was a generic thing, and you eat it, you don't catch it. And, and I didn't know what a, the face of one, but he would go, it looks like this, or 
looks like that. And, you know, you kind of personalize the fish. And, um, and the calls of frogs and toads, he, he imitate them. He, he, these were friends to him. He worked very hard at his job and never got, got very little vacation. For the first five years, his place of work, his oil-related job, he got one week of vacation and sick time combined a year. For the first five years, really no vacation if you got a cold. And the next five years, he got two weeks. So you have one week for the cold and one week vacation. So he never got to all those fish. He never got to those toads. He couldn't get that life. Finally, he was on the verge of retiring. And finally, at last, he would get some time for his beloved nature. He was on his third marriage. He just married five years ago, a very beautiful, kind woman. And he was looking forward to his retirement at last. But what was to happen was that on this bayou, there was a company called Texas Brine which drills below the surface of the water, down, 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 for brine. Brine being very useful in fracking and in many industrial uh, processes. You need it to make chlorine and things. So Texas brine was drilling down, and below the bayou uh, was this natural formation called a salt dome, which, in which a whole lot of commerce went on. Who knew it? But um, Dow Chemical and uh, um, uh, Sassol and a whole variety of companies uh, owned little uh, pieces of this uh, underlying salt dome and rented them out for the purpose of storing toxic chemicals, which are often very valuable chemicals, and waste. So Texas brine um, uh, drilled down, broke a piece off of this uh, side off of the dome, and the dome split open, and like a sinkhole, it was like pulling the plug on uh, a a bathtub, the water began uh, being drawn down, 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 and pulling 100-foot-high and year-old cypress trees, you know, the national tree, just kind of cascading down. You can Google it, and, and you see these trees being sucked into the sun. What year did this happen? This was in um, 12, 2012. And not only that, but there were now uh, earthquakes where they had never been heard of before and making loud noises. And he said, I was, thought I was having a heart attack in, in my home. Uh, it was so uh, moving back and forth. Lawns began to tilt. And worst of all, methane gas started to rise up in the water and in, in people's lawns. It, winter, it, I'm sorry, in... Um, when it rained, it was like Alka-Seltzer, you know, bubbling. Became very dangerous. If you lit a match, who knew if it wouldn't blow up? And who knew what was going to happen with the sense so many closely uh, uh, related uh, pockets within the, the uh, uh, now flexible uh, salt dome had very dangerous chemicals. So. There has been no accident like it, and it is now called um, Bayou Corn Sinkhole. So uh, at this point, uh, the, uh, there was an emergency called, and people, the 260 people that had this community that Mike Schaff so prized had been forced uh, to leave uh, to camper trucks and back rooms of relatives and uh, motel six rooms and commute to their jobs from these temporary quarters, which they were not sufficiently compensated for. And there was long delay while one lawsuit after another uh, went on, and they 
they were for years, actually, over a year in, these, in this situation. So community had been ruined, but what by? Was it big government? No, it was by Texas Brine, who had been under-regulated. Under-regulated. In other words, uh, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, they don't say protection, quality, had um, known uh, that this was a vulnerable uh, place to drill and had winked at it. So, so when I first met uh, Mike Schaff, was first at an environmental meeting because I realized that environment was actually the keyhole issue. Because you can resent the government for giving out food stamps to people that should be working, and, but that's not your interest. You're, you're not buying food stamps. You're not taking food stamps. But you want to breathe clean air. You want to swim and fish in clean water. That's got to be your interest, your human lifetime interest. And that's being violated, and you're still against the government. So what? It, it was just getting worse. I wasn't <laughs> learning more. I was just getting more puzzled. Um, and so uh, the first time I met him, he was at this rally, and I went to his home. Everybody else in his neighborhood had left, and he was staying there. Boxes were there. There was a, uh, a gas monitor in the garage because there was way too much gas. It really was dangerous to be there. So what are you, why are you staying? Well, I'm looking out for the property, you know, of my neighbors and uh, against marauders. There's a long pause. Actually, I don't want to leave. He was, I don't want to leave. He, he was a neighbor community guy, a local guy, he didn't travel much. And this was only some 20 miles from Armalee's plantation where he was born. So he was, this was, and these were his people. And he uh, didn't want to leave, although the people had left. He was holding on to almost the idea of, of community and place. So, so why, again, was he embracing a private sector that in his life had actually not been kind? These, these were not it was not a wonderful place to work that gave you generous vacations uh, and great pay. He said, oh, we hadn't had a raise in 20 years. Um, Just to clarify, he is a member of the Tea Party, yes. right? Oh, yes. He's an active oh, yes. member. Yeah. Yes. Active. And the environmental rally that, he, that you met him at was a rally to rally support against the company, or what was yes, it for? It was. To try to get the company to cough up some money and solve the problem? And to try and get the Louisiana state to get active. And this is part of the story. So why, I didn't just sit him down and say, I am so confused. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, it, 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 this was something that kind of came out. But when I went home and tried to put it together, I see three barriers to his faith in a good state and all the things it could do for, to help what many liberals think would be good for, for people to have. The first was, well, the state represents the North. You know, they, in the South, they think of the federal government is the North with its moralizing, wagging finger. You know, first the, the carpetbaggers came down in uh, 1860s and then uh, civil rights workers. And even now they feel forced in many ways by environmentalists, among others, to be, uh, embrace a Northern agenda. But I wouldn't give that much. I think more important were the next two reasons. This is getting at that red state paradox that he represented to me. Um, and it goes like this. And I tried this idea out on him. And he said, yeah. Although it's not how he put it at first. I, I said this, look, Louisiana is an oil state. That's the dominant industry, just like sugar in the plantation south was the 
dominant, and, and cotton was a dominant industry. A lot of capital was needed to get it going. Very rich companies uh, dominated. And what this, what this industry has done is really um, subordinate and, and come to control the state. The state is almost an arm of the company, really is. Uh, and so the state is kind of takes the position of, well, I'm on bended knee. Please come to Louisiana. Please don't go to Texas. Uh, we need your jobs here. In fact, these are highly automated plants uh, and uh, often foreign owned, and they import uh, Filipino pipe fitters. So the promise of jobs, jobs, jobs was uh, only 15% only of jobs in the entire state are oil or oil related. But so the, the, uh, the state says, please come. We will give you incentive money to come here. So uh, under Governor Jendal, they gave $1.5 billion to a set of petrochemical companies that were coming to exploit uh, cheap natural gas, the result of fracking. And so uh, with that money, these companies then said, oh, let's make a donation to the Audubon Society. And let's make another donation to a bird sanctuary over here, or a third grade a science class over there. So the companies were, looked like good guys. We're giving, we're the givers. We're giving you jobs, and we're making wonderful donations. Although they were doing this with tax money that the the government had given to these companies. So that's on the company side. On and you look, I'm looking at emotions here, you know, that you make you love the company. Oh, thank you for all those good things you're bringing. Meanwhile, the, these companies, very cleverly, I think, assign to the state to be the bad guy, to be like the complaints clerk, to kind of do the dirty work. Okay, don't really regulate us, but make it look like you are regulating us. And that's exactly what they did. They, they, hired a lot of people in green uniforms, and they had a lot of bureaucracy. They wrote in gobbledygook and uh, did not, in fact, protect the people. And at that rally in Baton Rouge, people were saying, we don't like that. You know, this is we're living with pollution. Are those regulators members of the community, or are they outsiders? They're members of the community. And Mike Sheff says, why should I pay taxes? to give a raise to a guy who's not doing his job. But in a sense, the companies had positioned the state to do their moral dirty work, and people were responding to the state and saying, you're not protecting us, you are doing moral dirty work, you're not helping us, you are hurting us, and we hate you. So they loved the companies, right? And they hated the state, and I understand why, because the state was, in fact, uh, what they call a captured state. And the economists talk about such states as captured states. So this was a second reason that you could kind of understand why a Mike Chef would be skeptical about what the government does. So first, the government seemed like an instrument of the North. Then the government seemed like an instrument of oil. But there's a third and I think most important thing that the government came to seem the instrument of. And that takes us to a basic central idea in the book of the deep story. What is a deep story? A deep story is a story that feels true to you. You take facts out of it. You take moral judgments out of it. It's just a story that feels true. The right wing has their deep story, I argue, and the left wing has its deep story. We all have deep stories. But unless we climb the empathy wall and get to that deep story, we're not going to really be able to talk to each other uh, meaningfully. So the deep story for a Mike Chef, and I tried this out on him, and he said, yeah, yeah, I, I live that. So the deep story 
is imagine you're, you're waiting in line. It's like a pilgrimage, slightly up a hill, at the top of which is the American dream. And the line is not moving and hasn't in a long while. But you're patient, you're good, you don't dislike anybody, you're, you're following the rules, but you've worked hard, you haven't had vacation. He said, oh, I haven't had a month off since uh, I was 20 years old in college. So, Anna hadn't had a raise. So, you've worked hard, and then you see some people cutting in line. And you think, oh no, who's that? Well, uh, they're blacks who, through affirmative action, are getting access to jobs that used to be reserved for whites. And who else is that? That's women who, through affirmative action, are getting access to jobs that used to be reserved for men. And who else is it? There are immigrants, and there are uh, refugees. And they even think of the endangered black, a brown pelican, you know, as environmentalists are putting animals ahead of us. And wow, it's a long wait, and, and, and the line is not moving. In fact, it's moving backwards. Then they see uh, Barack Hussein Obama, President of the United States, waving to the line cutters. Oh no, what's that? He's their president. He's sponsoring the line cutters. And he's not sponsoring me. He's not my president. And then they think, in fact, is he one of them? Is he, how did he get to Columbia University? How did his mother, a single mother, pay the large tuition uh, for uh, Harvard, something must be rigged, uh, it's fishy. So then they begin to feel estranged and, and, and feel, well, so who represents me? This government doesn't. The government is an instrument of the line cutters. So it's been an instrument of the North, it's been an instrument of oil, now it's an instrument of the line cutters. And then, to top it off, someone ahead of the line turns around and says, you southerner, you ignorant redneck. And that is a moment of estrangement. I am a stranger in my own land. And I think it was this that had happened to Mike Schaff and was the reason, ultimately, for his resistance to the government made him turn to the Tea Party. And when Donald Trump came to town in March for the Louisiana primary, to root for Donald Trump. That's, uh, that, that, that cutting in line story is really the, the, the basis of the, the sort of her theory at the end. Um, I think it, the way that you're telling it now, it's told very eloquently in the book. Uh, however, leading up to it, um, you tell stories about other people, not just Mike, but uh, again, those, the couple that lived down the bayou, I guess it's a different bayou that was different poisoned, um, and who had turned away from, again, uh, feeling completely betrayed by the government, had put their faith in God, and were extremely religious. And what's striking about this to me, the takeaway, uh, one of the takeaways, is this, this uh, the, the, the sense of betrayal and the absolute, you used the word faith, the absolute loss of faith in the idea of kind of the public sphere and the government being able to create anything that was of use to them, any, any kind of system that would be uh, communal. Um, and this, you know, that family, again, who you haven't mentioned, but this, it's a heartbreaking story. And the, the son, um, I mean, they have nowhere, they're the last people on this dead bayou, and the parents are going to die, they're very old. And the son is very religious, and he is, he tells Arlie, we are um, waiting for the, for the rapture. Um, you know, this, the earth is just, it's despoiled, and it's 
all this is the end times and it'll be beautiful again someday after this world has been purified by the flames and so the sense that you come away with is that there's this absolute loss of faith in your fellow man and the placing of it in the supernatural and uh, that is something that even though you can understand it and you can feel it um, it's just very difficult to reconcile, especially from because you 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 do explain the deep story for the for the liberal progressive side is is you know Norway, um, you know the 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 communal the socialistic communal uh, perfect I ideal utopia uh, where every a little bit create. different. I, 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 the, the, the deep story for uh, progressives, I think, is we're all ranged around a public square. And uh, inside this square is a state-of-the-art children's science museum. That's the most innovative thing you've ever seen with really inspired teachers there and volunteers and there are schools and play yards and museums that stay open all the time and um, an extraordinary public sphere humming a creative and avail integrative available to all and the people around this square are fiercely proud of it they made this square, what's inside. They're part of it. They, or they work for nonprofits, or they work for the private sector, but that somehow values this. And then they see some outsiders come in and dig out a huge chunk of concrete from that fantastic uh, state-of-the-art uh, children's science museum, take it outside the square, and begin to build a McMansion just for themselves. And we're outraged. I mean, what? You know, leave the square there. In fact, enhance it. Um, so I think that is our, or speak, progressive um, uh, anxiety and upset. And um, yeah, um, but Norway oh, does fit that. Yeah, well, I just was in Norway a week ago, and oh. it is utopian. So yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm looking for a, a way to get my passport over there if I, I if things turn out a certain way. In and you know, I, when um, I give talks, my my left arm is gets heavy for pointing to Norway. Yeah, so. um, something. To but learn. the sense. So I think we, you know, to try to kind of bring this into the present and into what is happening in our country right now, this is a very important conversation. Um, it, it's, it's a conversation starter. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how the sense of betrayal um, that, that you're identifying as at least one of the factors of um, this distrust of the government can ever be something that can be reconciled or that we can we can heal and um in the, the way the system's working now um you know is there a, is there a way for a, a general kind of conversation to begin to happen or or are they you know is that empathy wall how is that empathy wall expanded they're coming uh, or, or our way, down. too. No, I, I ended up... I'm criticized for being overly optimistic. Uh, uh, that's fine. Um, because I heard a lot of comments from them uh, that suggest crossover issues, crossover values, and even crossover ways of thinking. Like, for example, when I said to Mike Schaff... Actually, it's the companies that are using the state as the bad guy. And no wonder they're making you hate the state. It's not the state's fault. It's the company's use of the state. And you, of course, don't want to pay taxes to a captured state. Does that make sense to you, that a social logic connects to a personal you know, family strategy for, for making the American dream? He said yes. That way of thinking, in other words, I'm really blaming the company, but that was fine. He thought that made sense. So there was a crossover way of thinking. He and others said, let's get money out of politics. 
Well, campaign finance reform. I mean, that's, I think, a crossover issue. Uh, and uh, the environment. Why is that a, a progressive issue and not a conservative one? He was very critical of um, the right for ignoring that. Um, reducing prison uh, populations and uh, decriminalizing certain drugs. All, all of this, these were crossover issues that I commonly found. But if we could only get the conversation going and we're not um, dismissing one another as deplorable, I, 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 think, uh, I think we could get somewhere. You know, I began with this red state paradox And I ended with two more paradoxes. That one, I think, I, I understand that something else was more important to them. And they knew about that paradox, but this other deep story really loomed large for them. But the two paradoxes I ended up with were one for the left and one for the right. The one for the right was... Look, if you uh, embrace Donald Trump, and they did so very ambivalently. People did not love this man. It's just that nothing else felt like an answer to their uh, experience. Uh, but they, many of them, want a smaller government. And Donald Trump, of course, if he's going to remove every undocumented worker in the United States, has to set up an enormously expensive surveillance state that would cost an arm and a leg and raise the very debt they often complain needs to be lowered. That's their paradox. He's not your small government guy. 900 more troops on the ground, that's going to cost a lot of money. So that's their paradox. I think the paradox for the left is, look, the Democratic Party has announced itself as the party of the working man, right? The, 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 and and uh, <clears throat> it didn't represent the interests of the 1%, but of the, the 99 and of working men and women. Well, why are working men and women uh, vacating this party? What, what's the exodus about? And what can you and I and others do about that? That's, that's the question I think has to be faced squarely and that this whole election and post-election period should make us uh, want to uh, address and do something about. Thank you, Arlie. I guess we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for coming.